The rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be with you this morning. I hope that you've had a blessed time this morning so far as we've been in worship through song. Now we're going to worship the Lord through the reading of His Word. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? God's plan for a healthy church is our study through First and Second Corinthians. We're in Second Corinthians chapter 12 now. When you hit chapter 10, we, it, it, the uh, topic was spiritual warfare, walking the hard road, marks of a faithful minister now as we get into chapter 11. I'd like to read together to save our time, as uh, I'd like to cover as much as we can this morning. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You can find a Bible around you that's a New American Standard, which I'll be reading from, or just read from whatever version you study every day, and I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together. Picking up at verse 1, he says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 3, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know. God knows was caught up into paradise. Verse 4, And heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Verse 5, on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. Verse 6, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Stop right there. Last time we were in our passage, we finished up chapter 11, and we began to see, as we got into chapter 11, some of the marks of a godly leader, more generally, of course, the marks of a faithful believer. In verses 28 and 29, that, chapter 11, that began to give us an idea of what they look like, of course, and, and it's not what we would expect as we've gone through this whole section and began to take a look at Paul as he's had to mark the... the uh, trademarks of a godly teacher, a godly leader, over and opposed to unfaithfulness that has been found in the church in Corinth, uh, it's not what we would expect to hear. Walking the hard road, though, we saw as part and parcel of following Jesus among the, all the things that we learn as we watch Paul through these two letters, we learn this humble acceptance of these truths, embracing the fact that it's difficult, ministry is difficult, and hardship comes as an affirmation of God's direction and as an affirmation in the ministry he's been given, which is quite the opposite of typically how the church would look at it now. Difficult times, hardships, difficult people. Many would think, well, maybe God doesn't want me to do this. Just quite the opposite is what we learn is that faithful ministry is always opposed. Difficult times always come to those who are doing what the Lord wants you to do. Now look at verse 28 of chapter 11, just a little bit of a review here for those who weren't here. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 28 says, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of uh, concern for all the churches. Who is weak, verse 29, without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? So we saw, as we looked at that last time, uh, notwithstanding the effect of the physical hardship on Paul, which we saw over and over again, very difficult times he had to go through, lack of clothing, lack of food, uh, lack of a place to sleep, hardships on the road beaten many times, dangers in the city, dangers out in the country, dangers from his own countrymen. All that kind of thing uh, was difficult, but it wasn't daily. But this thing we see now as he talks about the burden for all the churches is a daily burden. And that's where we marked our first mark of a faithful minister. It's a heart for the health of the church. And 
and this is typically the opposite of false teachers, false apostles who really don't care about the health of the church. And Paul's experience, and very likely faithful ministers' experience, is that the heart of the health of the church brings with it pressure, difficulty. And the word we saw is an interesting one. It has to do with the rising up of a rebellion. Pressure itself, as we see it in Greek, is uh, a hounding, persistent, wearing assault. That's the pressure of the churches daily on the Apostle Paul. So he has to deal with the churches every day, and it no doubt uh, robs him of his peace, his health, his sleep, his tranquility, his happiness. And we looked at a lot of examples last time, so we won't go through all those again, about Paul praying for the church. And, and in the language of the prayers, we can see that he sorrowed over them. We can see that he worried about them. He worked hard for them. He pled with them. He confronted them, and he worked with them. And that's the daily pressure. And Paul says that's much more difficult to bear than the things I told you about physically and even the things I didn't tell you about. And he is caught up in concern over the disobedient and the immature uh, in the church and, and the ones who are struggling. Uh, like he said in verse, chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And we saw that second mark of a faithful minister. He's compassionate over the needs of the church. And that expresses itself in a number of places. He, uh, it expresses itself in empathy. It certainly causes him to feel weakness. And, and he feels weak when he hears or sees someone who's failing, who's struggling, who's stumbling. And so that's on him all the time, and he feels empathy for that. And then last part of verse 29, he says, who is led into sin? He says, without my intense concern. And that led into sin is that present passive of scandalizo, which we saw is where we get our word scandal. And this is a word that is the trigger for a trap. And Paul says, listen, who's trapped in sin uh, caught up in it or trapped by it, and that doesn't trigger my intense concern. And the word here is used to describe uh, the, the final result of obstinacy, so stubborn people can get trapped in sin, uh, a foot entangled with being kind of friends with the world and getting trapped in sin. It's used in passages that way. It's described as growing offended by a perceived slight, uh, slight in the church. That happens so often. People perceive a slight, uh, something that is said bothers them so much. There's a great illustration of that, that word used in that way. And we ran out of time last time, but Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. I'd like you to look there, if you would. Just hold your finger here, and I think that uh, you will, you will um, find this, this encouraging. And, and I think it's some instruction there, too. And, and just in context, Jesus is teaching in parables here, which is a, uh, an, earthly, uh, an earthly example of a heavenly point. So he's going to tell... Uh, he's trying to tell his disciples about things about the kingdom, but he's using earthly examples to do that. And this is a very common way that Jesus taught. In verse 47, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering up fish of every kind. Verse 48, And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. And then he takes that earthly example, something everybody's seen and understands, and then in verse 49 he says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them in the furnace of fire in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that kind of settles the, the, the uh, debate of whether or not everybody's going to get to the same place, right? All the different kinds of teaching and whether or not you believe in Jesus and all that. That makes it clear that not everybody ends up where they think they're going to end up. And then verse 51, he says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And then verse 52, and Jesus said to them, now mark this, this is going to take us into the illustration we want to make. Therefore, every scribe, now you understand that word scribe, you've heard it many times. Scribe was an expert in law. Every scribe was a Pharisee. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but every scribe was a Pharisee. Those who opposed Jesus and his teachings typically. But mark this, he says, 
Uh, he says to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. So he says there are some scribes who have understood the new kingdom, they understand the new covenant, brings out of his treasure things new and old. In other words, he understands the law from old and he understands the kingdom of the Messiah. And Nicodemus is probably one of those who fell into that category. He said that's a, that's a really great group. Those don't always oppose me because typically Pharisees and scribes did. Now look at verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, and he came to his hometown, and he finished teaching them in, and he began teaching them in the synagogue so that they were astonished. So who's there in the synagogue then in his hometown? Well, that would have been Jewish leaders, scribes, Pharisees, and priests. Now, he just said a scribe who, who uh, understands these things, a scribe uh, who becomes a disciple of the kingdom is a great scribe. Now, he's not going to bump into those guys right now. Here's what's going to happen. He goes to teach, and here's what they say. They're listening to him teach in power. Here's the first thing that comes to their mind. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? So Jesus is teaching, obviously, in the synagogue and with the accompanying signs that verify the message and the messengers, which we know from the first century is the way the Lord chose to do that. Uh, but look what they say, verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? This is just a carpenter's son, all right? This, is, this guy's not a scribe. He's not a Pharisee. He's not an expert in the law. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas in verse 56 and his sisters, are they not all with us? You can just kind of hear the sing-songy way that they're going about criticizing it. They're taking offense at him. That's precisely the word that's going to be used. And mark this, uh, in verse 57, they took offense, scandalizo. They were led astray by a perceived offense by something that he said. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So in other words, the better the people know him, the less they honor him. And this is precisely what is going on with Paul, isn't it? They know him very well. It's not like he has to reacquaint himself with the, with the people at Corinth. It happens to Paul all the time. It's happening right now in the church. They, they pick apart his words. They attack him personally. Uh, and they're in sin, of course, and Paul is intensely concerned about that. But regardless of how the sin occurred, whether they were led off astray because they decided they were going to, to follow things of the world, or maybe they... Uh, they, got, um, they were just stubborn about the instruction they received. They wouldn't change their direction, ended up in sin. Or maybe they were offended, and it happens all the time in church for no, no reason whatsoever. But regardless of what happened, however they fell in sin, Paul's reaction to them is, without my intense concern. And we saw last time that that is uh, peruomai. That is from our, where we get our word pyro. It just means Paul's set on fire. If, if he sees somebody in sin, that's a problem. One of you is led into sin, I'm, we could say it this way, inflamed about that. And, and here we saw this, the second way his compassion for the church is expressed it's, is his engagement in sinfulness. He isn't ignoring it. He isn't saying, oh, well, that's the way it goes. Just let them go. You know, whatever. They can do whatever they want. He, he wasn't about that, see. And we saw, I think it's important by, from Paul's example, as we think about how, we're supposed to, how the church is supposed to work, it's not condemning to engage people who are trapped in sin. It's not patronizing to be empathetic for people who are, who are struggling and weak and point it out. You're struggling. You're having some weakness. It's not, it's not, um, it's not condemning to do that, see? Uh, somebody wanders away into sin, trapped by sin, fooled into sin, obstinately, stubbornly falling into sin, being offended. Engaging those things is, is the opposite of being contentious in the church. It's what the minister is supposed to do. It's what those who, who attend are supposed to do. And we see that from Paul's example. So in this context then, Paul sees these things are going on in the church. He's inflamed about them. 
He's not keeping quiet about it. He's speaking about it. He's coming and he's watching people being pulled away from sound doctrine. He's watching false teachers pulling people away and destroying confidence in the Word of God. That happens all the time, don't, doesn't where people misquote the Word of God. And then people are like, I'm claiming this by faith. And then people are like, uh, uh, what does that mean? And why don't they have it? And, and why don't I have it? And it pulls away confidence from, in the church from the Word of God. And that happens a lot. And Paul gets inflamed by that and says, this is a way that I'm expressing uh, the character traits of a true teacher by showing compassion for those kinds of things. And then we get to the last four verses of chapter 11. Look there if you would, verse 30. He says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And we saw that was our third mark of a faithful minister. He doesn't operate under his own power. In fact, he knows that he doesn't have any power to accomplish anything for the kingdom in and of himself. And that's just the opposite of uh, typically of the false teacher who believes that they are superior and believe they have all kinds of knowledge that they need. And, and of course, Paul is trying to show himself superior to the false teachers. And he just says, listen, I'm going to talk about my suffering. I'm going to talk about my weaknesses. And that seems so contrary to the approach, uh, the normal approach, if you will, of false apostles and faithful leaders and how they would go about it. They tend to be impervious, right? If you listen to them, they tend to be, you know, uh, very strong and impressive and dominant, and, and they're invincible, and they just claim it in Jesus' name, and they control their environment and take charge of people and, and claim victory and all the, over the evil one and all that kind of stuff, see? And they look so powerful. Paul doesn't come across that way, does he? He shows the inner workings. Look at verse 31. It illustrates how little he has control over the circumstances of his own ministry. Instead of showing miracle power, right, instead of great standing of faith and disarming the powers of darkness, what's he say in verse 31? The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who's blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. So in front of the Lord and in front of Christ himself, I'm going to tell you a story that's true. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. Verse 33, I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. And, and that's the opposite of what you would expect from a powerful apostle, right? And it gives his enemies plenty of ammunition to shoot at him. How could he be a true apostle if he has to go around sneaking around trying to get out of the city to keep people from murdering him? There's not much, there's not much um, of, a, of the power of God in him. It's so embarrassing. And so he's boasting of things no powerful apostle would boast about. And then he says, look at chapter, two, chapter 12, uh, if you would, verse 1. He says, he says this. So he's going to move into another section here. And he says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, let's stop right there. And Paul is still very uncomfortable because he feels it's essential to divulge an important spiritual experience. And he's, he prepares to do it. He says, I'm going to do it, but it's not profitable. And I, and I think that's worthy of a pause the point he's making, I think, is boasting about visions and revelations of the Lord is not profitable. And, and I say that just to say that Paul is really safeguarding himself by asserting that he's doing uh, it this way. That's going to give him no personal satisfaction. He doesn't want to say it because he doesn't, he doesn't think it's going to, be, uh, going to be, it's going to bear on it, and he thinks it's not profitable. And he wants to put a lot of distance between himself and the false teachers because they're not known for their modesty. And as it was in Paul's time, I think it still is today, uh, false apostles probably boasted about their visions and other supernatural revelations from God. And, and if we just, uh, just kind of bring up an, an inductive approach to this passage, there's a couple things I think we can, we can pull out here, and we're going to look at these as we go through the, the morning. Number one, Paul hates to boast. I think we can easily see that. He says it numerous times. Uh, it's not a sin. It's just not profitable. He does, he, nobody wants to engage in a defense of their own uh, viability as a minister. Paul's no different. 
And that being the case, and Paul would likely have never mentioned his visions and supernatural revelations unless the false apostles had already done that, right? We can kind of track what's going on in the church by what Paul has to say. Because what would be the point of Paul doing it? We know that the false apostles let it be known that they're Paul's superiors and, and in respect to personal spirituality way over him. And further, Paul doesn't want to waste words debating whether or not false apostles' spiritual experiences were genuine because we know what he thinks about the false teachers and false apostles. They, everything about them is fake and phony. Remember in chapter 11, verse 13, as he talks about the ones who invaded the church and things that are, are true about them, he says such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. In other words, the things that they do look one way but aren't actually that way at all. They're not spiritual, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they look like they're spiritual, and they look like they should give the message, much like today in the modern churches where you have false teachers. They look like apostles. They look like faithful ministers, but they're not. And you can tell by what they do. And no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. The Lord knows how they're working. He knows how it works inside them. He knows they're not true, and they'll have an end according to that. But Paul just says, listen, they're pretenders, deceitful workers, servants of Satan. So he doesn't have to repeat himself again here in chapter 12, verse 1. As he gives his experience of visions and revelations, he doesn't have to turn around and say, and theirs are false. He's just going to count on the church to recognize the authenticity of his experiences by balancing out the truthfulness of his story and the fact that they haven't heard this account of these experiences before. And we're going to see that in just a minute, and I think this is very important. He says this, Paul says, visions and revelations of the Lord which really happened to me are not helpful for me to talk about. That's what not profitable means. And that's our fourth mark of a faithful minister. He focuses on things that are profitable for the church. And mark this, beloved, his experiences are not part of that ministry. You wouldn't know that, though. You, you, you listen to guys speak, and they just use themselves as the illustration constantly. That what they went through, what they do, all that kind of thing, that becomes the groundwork in order to help the Scriptures along for you to receive them. That is precisely the opposite of what the Apostle Paul does. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it's a verse that we're very familiar with. Verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and what? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what's profitable? The scripture. Talking about visions and revelations is what? Paul says, not profitable. But you wouldn't know that, right? Because today it's likely the same as it was back in Paul's time. That's what false teachers always want to talk about. What they see supersedes what the Bible says. What they see and experience builds up their authority and helps them appear spiritual to their followers. What, that they know something others don't know is important to them, see? And they want to make sure that you know they had this special revelation from the Lord. They have a word of Christ to the church, see? That's all false, beloved. We know what is profitable, what's profitable. The Scripture is profitable. And Paul says, and we'll see this, it's not profitable for me to talk about them. I've had them, but it's not profitable for me to talk about them because they tend to build my pride. And we're going to see that later in this passage. And they become a temptation to arrogance. And they tend to make people assume more about me than they can see and know to be in me. Right? Because if you say you've had visions and, and revelations, then all of a sudden everybody thinks you're some super Christian and somehow the Lord's talking to you personally and that gives you some authority. See, Paul says it's not profitable for me to talk about them to you because, number one, they can't help you because they were personal visions and revelations for me. 
And two, they can't help the church either. Now, let's see what Paul relates to the church. I think we get some traction here eventually, but I think it's important to take a minute and set this up. This is so, it's so strange to read this. And look at verse 2. Paul says this, and I'm just going to put our reference up there. You just follow along in your copy of God's Word. I know a man who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 3, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into the paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Stop right there. And the question immediately comes up, who is the guy Paul's talking about? I mean, you think, you're gonna, you think he's talking about himself, but then he, he sets it up as he gonna, he's talking in the third person. And so the reader's like, what? And then you get to verse 5. Look there, on behalf of such a man, so he's still talking in third person, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I'll not boast. So he's like separating himself away from this person. You're like, who is this person? Except in regard to my weaknesses. And we understand that about Paul. He, he boasts in his weaknesses. Verse 6, for if I do not wish to boast, for I, if I do not wish to boast, I will not be fo- foolish, for I be speaking. If I do wish to boast, I'll not be foolish. Paul says, if I do say something about myself, it's true, but I'll refrain from this, mark it, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears to be from me. So he says, I don't want to tell you these kinds of things because you'll give me authority and you'll give me some kind of esteem that I don't want you to give me. I just want you to hear what comes from me, and that be the basis for your growth in Christ. And you have to go all the way down to verse 7 to be sure who he's talking about. Look at verse 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. All right, so we're still talking about this guy who got caught up to the third heaven. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Now we know who he's talking about, right? There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. So now we're sure he's talking about himself. But why do you go about it that way? You know I know a man of Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, out of the body, I don't know, God knows, right? And then I was caught up to the third heaven. That's another thing we're going to look at at a future time. That, that's an interesting word. You know, it's only a couple of places in Scripture. Guess where one of them is? First Thessalonians chapter 4, when it talks about the rapture. Same words, same place. So I think that's interesting. But Paul's talking about that. So, so again, even in the midst of an obviously powerful revelation of importance, Paul comes across as weak, doesn't he? He doesn't know if he was there in person, in his body. He doesn't know if he's there in spirit, and his body stayed on earth, right? All he knows is he was caught up to the third heaven. And we just, and just as a footnote, we looked at this before. When we see the word heaven in the scriptures, we know by the word in the context that first heaven, that's the immediate atmosphere around us, clouds, air, etc. The second heaven is sun, moon, and stars, planets, where, where our solar system is. And then the third heaven is the abode of the Father. That's, that's heaven, and that's where Paul was caught up. And we can see again that he just gives his critics all the more ammunition, doesn't he, to fire at him. They're like, what? He doesn't even know if he was really there or if it was just a dream. You know, he really doesn't have any authority. You know, we have where God has spoken to us and given us word for the church. And so we've given it to the church and they know that we're powerful. Paul doesn't even know if he was, if he was there in person. He doesn't know anything about himself. He just comes across as very wishy-washy. And just using modern vernacular, you know, because arrogant boasting of a word from the Lord or a vision from the Lord uh, all still come to the same place, Satan himself. You don't, 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 don't imagine that's something uh, super spiritual. Listen, the Lord has, has, has uh, given us his word in the scriptures, right? Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that in times past he used to speak that way, but now he has revealed himself through Jesus, right? 
So don't be impressed by all that stuff, okay? That's, it's just as bogus now as it was then. So Paul recounts this. You can see it gives him no joy to prolong this folly of recounting this experience because, number one, just a couple of things I think can be helpful. It doesn't add uh, any validity to his office. He doesn't want it to. He doesn't want to say it. He doesn't want people to think any highly, more highly of him because he did this. Okay, so there's no reason why he should recount it. Number two, why should he share with others, friend or enemy alike, secret sessions spent privately with the Lord and risk being considered vain considering where he was allowed to go with all the grandeur that can be imagined. I want you to, I want you to, to dwell on that a little bit, right? Because I mean, Paul got to go caught up to the third heaven. I need you to put that in your mind. This is, this is what happened to Paul, see? And so Paul, there's no reason for Paul to recount this. People are just going to think he's vain, and he got to see a whole bunch of cool stuff nobody else got to see. And number three, what difference would it make? Because it, he isn't allowed to tell anybody any of it anyway. He heard stuff, and he says, I'm not allowed to utter it. So it hasn't contributed market anything to any other person's understanding of Christ, the kingdom, or the gospel. Now, beloved, if Paul refrains from talking about it for 14 years, and how obvious is it when we see this going on in the modern-day church that it's false? See, because they're wanting to do the opposite of what the apostle Paul wants to do. And, and number four, Paul says, listen, I don't want to tell it because it just messes with my pride, and it makes people think about me more than they, what they see in me and know to be in me. I, I don't want people to think that. And then it was just a personal experience. It's no benefit to the church. Do you remember, and we've looked at this before, when Paul left the Ephesian church in Acts 20, and I think this is important to point out, in Acts 20, verse 20, he says this, typical Paul, how he, um, how he talks about his ministry, but then in a very mo a modest and very uh, humble way. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. What do we know that's not profitable? Visions and revelations, right? He just said that, didn't he? It's not profitable for me to talk about that. So, in teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the dreams and visions I had and the mighty miracles God worked through me. Is that what he says? No. Of course that's not what, are you following along with me? Do you have your Bible open? Listen, the whole purpose of God, right? I did not cease to declare to you the whole purpose of God. Verse 32, and now I commend you to the dreams I had and the visions and revelations. No, to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's what builds you up. Scripture builds you up. Scripture is what's profitable, right? All this other stuff you've heard, you know, you've never heard before was personal for me. It has no bearing on you. What it has bearing on you is the word of God. And Paul says, the Word of God doesn't need to be supplemented by my experiences, see? And we just wish that the modern church the teachers would remember that, right? Particularly false teachers that are so prevalent in the charismatic and emergent and progressive churches. Save us from a lot of grief and frustration, both, both to those of us who look on that with disgust and to the congregations who are misled by all of that. And, and if you think about it, the only revelation we need apart from the Word of God is the revelation of Jesus, right? Isn't that what we're waiting on? That's the one we're waiting for. See, it's the one we're laboring for. Paul said to the Corinthian church, right at the beginning of that first letter we studied, 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. In other words, they received grace to be redeemed, that in everything you were enriched in him, 
in all speech and all knowledge. You were given all that you needed to do the work of the ministry. So, and that's the same with you. When you came to faith, you were enriched in him with all wisdom and knowledge to do the ministry God has set before you. You've been given spiritual gifts. We've talked about all this, and you know this. So verse 6 says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, and as you begin to do works of righteousness, what happens? People realize there's been a change, and you act differently. You are different, and that's very important. So he says, so you're not lacking in any gift. You're not waiting for anything else. Now mark this, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you in the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for revelation for. We're not waiting for some special word from the Lord to somehow enhance the ministry of the church and make people you know, believe that you've got some special thing for them. We're not waiting for any of that. Nobody gets that, see? And even if they did get that, what are they supposed to do? Be quiet about it. Why? Because it's not profitable for the church. It's personal. See? That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14 where people are speaking in angel language, right? Paul says, listen, it'd be much better if you speak three words in in a known language than 10,000 words in a language only you understand because nobody's profiting by that. Be quiet, in other words. Don't say that. Don't do it in the church. It's not profitable for anyone. And someone comes in while you're doing it and they think you're a bunch of lunatics, right? I mean, that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14. I'm just kind of giving you Cliff's notes. But this is the same here, right? Listen, we're waiting for one revelation. What is it? Jesus from heaven. That's it. Now, look, on, look at verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. He says, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, just for clarity, and, and I think this is important to point out, um, we can say that all visions that Paul had would include revelation, right? If Paul had a vision from the Lord, it would include revelation. He's going to reveal something to it. And I think it's, it's easy enough to point that out, right? But not all revelations would be in the form of a vision. He doesn't always have to get revelation from God in a vision. And, and we can certainly see that all throughout the book of Acts, visions and revelations. We know the Lord revealed to him many things which he passed down to the church. In fact, anytime when you read the Apostle Paul and he said, I received this from the Lord, this certain thing I pass on to you, what's that mean? Well, we know he received a revelation, whether it was the Holy Spirit telling him something like, don't go to Asia, or Jesus actually instructing them, as we see in Galatians 1.11, he said, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, just a straight revelation, without any reason to think it was a vision. And we know that Paul says this because we know that Paul spent three years in the Arabian Desert, and Jesus himself actually taught him. So he passes things on to the church, but we don't have to think that it was somehow in a vision. It could have just been Jesus telling him directly. And I think, it, but if you think about visions for Paul, I think the most obvious one is what? In Acts chapter 9. He's on the Damascus Road where everyone around hears the voice, but nobody sees anything except Paul, right? He had seen this wonderful vision of Jesus on the Damascus Road, which confirmed his apostleship, the last of the true apostles, and we looked at that several months ago and why that's important. No one else can claim that position. So this is all part of Paul's life. But when he gets to this part of his defense, uh, by the foolishness of boasting, he says, let me recount to you a vision you haven't heard anything about. And it was pretty special for Paul because he'd seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? And he'd repeated that a number of times, hadn't he? Remember when he was in jail and he was, he was giving his testimony? And they're like, Paul, you were this great educated guy persecuting this way that you thought was wrong. And now you're completely turned around. What happened? He's like, well, I saw a vision of Jesus himself. And the one that I was persecuting said, don't do it anymore. Follow me. And so Paul revealed that one, didn't he? And, and, the, and Jesus appeared to him at a time when, when Paul was very distraught. Do you remember when he went to uh, Corinth? 
and he preached in the synagogue. They rejected him, and he was worried, and he, he moves next door to the synagogue, leads the synagogue leader to Christ, and then no doubt he's worried and thinking, what is going to go on in this city? And the Lord actually uh, comes to him in, in the night in a vision, Acts 18.9 says, and says, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for you have many people in the city. So that was pretty important, wasn't it? He's at the middle, he's arguably one of the most important ministries he's going to do in Corinth, and he's worried that he's going to be killed before he even gets it off the ground, and Jesus comes in a vision and says, hey, you know, it's going to be okay, and I'm going to protect you, and nobody's going to harm you, and you're going to have the, the ministry I want you to have here. And then, of course, that wonderful one on the Damascus Road, two pretty important visions and ones that we know about because he told us about them. So Paul had some pretty special times, but he recounts one that surpasses all of them, and that's what he starts in, cha- in chapter 2, in verse 2. And as we pointed out, he speaks in the third person. And again, this appears to be his humility speaking, right? Because if you think about it, again, as we talked about Paul giving his credentials, and, and the way he does his credentials is not, I have a great education. You should see all the churches I've planted, and I am very well written. Instead, his credentials are, I've been beaten time without number. I've been, you know, shipwrecked in night and a day. I've spent in the deep and all that other stuff. That's Paul's credentials. So you wouldn't expect it to be any different here. But if we'd been to heaven, what would we probably say? We wouldn't say, oh, I know a guy, you know, uh, you know, 14 years ago went to heaven. We'd say what? I got to go to heaven, right? And we don't even have to guess that, right? Because there's a ton of books that say that very thing, right? Um, Richard Sigmund wrote a book, 2012, My Time in Heaven, A True Story of Dying and Coming Back. He's not saying I knew a guy, you know, 14 years ago, whether in the body or another. He's not saying, he's not being humble about it. He goes, I went to heaven, right? And, and uh, we saw heaven. Robert Lairdon, 2006, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife and Back. Even Alexander, October 2012. Heaven's for real. We know that one, right? I mean, that was made into a movie. It's a book about a boy's trip to heaven, October 31st, 2010. John Burke's book, Imagine Heaven, Near-Death Experiences, God's Promises, and the Exhilarating Future that Await You. He documents 100 near-death experiences and puts it all in his book. So, you know, if we go to heaven, we probably say, hey, I went to heaven. Paul didn't say that, did he? He says, I know a man in Christ. So that's a believer, someone who's in Christ, right? Because that's the most important qualification. Because you can think you went to heaven. But if you're not a believer in Christ's death and resurrection, then you didn't. And I say that just to say that that's a very real situation in our world today. My son and I, were, um, we do a project every summer. It helps him make a little bit extra money. And it gives us a bunch of opportunities to witness people. And we were in doing it one day in this tent. And um, this guy comes in, and it's the middle of the day. And there's no one else in there. And he's got a shirt open about right here. And he has a really wicked scar right down the middle. All the stitch marks are still really red and vivid. And he's obviously had an open heart surgery. And I thought, here's a guy who came really close to death. This is a likely candidate to give the gospel to, I would think. Right? So I began talking to him. He tells me about his experience, of course, and said that he died and you know, came back. And I said, well, you know, after I gave him the gospel, I said, well, what would have happened if, if you uh, died and hadn't come back? Because the Bible says, you know, it's appointed to man wants to die and after this comes a judgment for your sin. And he's like, well, I'm not worried about that because when I was dead, I was fishing. I didn't make that up. That's what he said to me. I'm not worried about what happens when I die because when I was dead on the, li- on the operating table, I was fishing. And I said, sir, th- this is super important. <laughs> you know, um, whatever you might imagine happened to you on the operating table, 
That's not reality, okay? That's just your mind doing whatever your mind did. The fact of the matter is that if you die, you'll find yourself in hell forever because you rejected salvation Jesus has provided on the cross. And his, his eyes just kind of glazed over. Like, he, he wasn't the least bit concerned that he'd come within a hair's breadth of eternity without Christ. I was shocked and saddened. And, it, and he walked out. He wasn't interested in anything that we said because he was convinced that his afterlife is going to be fishing. And, and that's the experience overruling the reality of what the Word of God clearly says. And that's why Paul says, you know, I know a man in Christ. Listen, you might have an imagination that you went to heaven, but if you're not in Christ, you're not having any of that, see? And I don't know what happened in any of those other books, and there's no way for us to know that subjectively and say, okay, when, when they were at the moment of, of death, they, they saw something. I do know this. If you don't claim Christ as your Savior, there's no chance in the world that you saw heaven. You didn't get to fish. You didn't get to do anything. You were a hair's breadth from hell, separated from God forever, see? This is a very common, this is a very common occurrence. So Paul's very humble. He says, listen, I know a man, um, and he's in Christ, and 14 years ago, and all of that. You know, most people say, you know, I went to heaven, like we see in the books. Paul speaks in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. And, and, I, and I think it's important to pull this out of here, too. And it just helps kind of undergird Paul's uh, humility. He says, he's obviously revealing something that apparently has been a secret for 14 years. Right? I mean, I think we can take that uh, easily enough from the passage. He hasn't said a word about that before. And now he's talking about it. And we don't see anything recorded for us anywhere that would even indicate that he had reiterated that story. And he'd reiterated other visions, but not that one. He talked about his vision on the Damascus Road numerous times, but that he got to go to heaven and he never said a word about it for 14 years. And we saw why right? Because it doesn't help anybody grow in Christ. It's not profitable, is it? It just fuels Paul's pride, he said. Now, next time we're together, it's almost out of time. We're, we're going we're gonna to look at some scriptures and figure out what we can know about the time that this probably happened. And there's not a lot there because obviously Paul didn't talk about it. But we'll look at it. But a couple of things as we close. I, this is, these are the questions that kind of pop in my mind, so I just kind of jotted them down as they it came to me. I always wonder, why did, the Lord, why did the Lord allow Paul to do this? The other, the other apostles didn't get this opportunity. They didn't get to do any of this, right? But Paul did, and it's a reality. We, we, we don't know about these other books, but we know for, for a fact that this is what happened with Paul. And maybe it was because he's going to suffer so much. And, and that's exactly what the Lord said to Ananias, right, in a vision. You know, Paul's in Damascus. He's He's blind temporarily, and the Lord comes into Ananias in a vision and says, hey, I need you to get up and go talk to Paul. And he's like, I'd rather not. Um, this guy's been kind of beating up everybody and hauling them over to Jerusalem and throwing them in jail because they're a believer. And the Lord says, listen, just go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. And mark this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And you could certainly make the argument that Paul suffered more than any of the apostles had to suffer for the spreading of the gospel. So maybe it was to help him get through it. The Lord had chosen him to suffer, and he was going to suffer drastically, hardship. He had that personal experience with the Lord. He heard things no one else has ever heard. It didn't benefit anyone else directly, but maybe it spurred Paul on to the hard times. Maybe. 
maybe it was so Paul wouldn't hold on to his life so dearly because he's so convincing when he, when he writes to the Philippian church. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is much more necessary for your sake. And, you know, as you, you think about that, we'd like, to be, we'd like to be with the Lord, right? Paul says, I'm hard-pressed to decide whether I want to go on staying here. We, we, you know, we're not at home here, obviously. We're, trespa- we're, we're, we're passing through. But we are kind of at home here too, right? I mean, we've made our home here. We have our family here. We, we'd like to be with them. We want to see our kids grow. Those kinds of things. We have some, we have some uh, connections here. and We want to make sure that they're not too strong, right? But uh, Paul says, listen, this is a hard decision for me to make. And I think it'd be easy to, easier to say that, right? If you'd already been up to third heaven, got the little glimpse, and you heard things... I mean, we already know that heaven's real, right? We know that that's our promise. Eternity is our promise. We hold on to that. Because Christ was raised, we will be too. But I think it's, um, it's uh, I love heaven, but I'm concerned about how I'm going to get there, right? The passageway through might be a little painful. It might be hard. It might be suffering. And so we're worried about that. We'd like to be in heaven, but we're not hard-pressed, are we? Most of the time, Paul says I'm hard-pressed. And I think maybe the vision helped him endure and, and ride and preach convincingly to others to do the same to be hard-pressed, to be, to have, for it to be okay. And I, I think they give us a lot more comfort now that we know Paul really knew what he was talking about. That could be it. Maybe it, it helped him look forward to all he had seen and heard so that he could say in Romans eight eighteen, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us because he had literally glimpsed it. Sometimes we would have trouble saying that, right? In the middle of uh, a health hardship or a financial hardship, it'd be hard, or, or, or a relationship hardship, it'd be hard to say, you know, um, the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared to what's coming next. I'm not sure we could parse that out as clearly as Paul did, but Paul had that vision, and maybe that helped him get through the difficulties. Maybe it was, it helped him to learn to minister through weakness so that the power of the message of the Christ would be so clear. You know, he also knew where the resurrection of the dead it's a perishable body. It's raised imperishable. And he looked forward to that because he knew what that held. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. And that was Paul raised in power. And, and the rest of our passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, we'll look at next time. I'm well content with weaknesses, Paul says, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Are you well content with any of those things? I would say that we can bear them, right? That we can, the more we focus on the fact that Christ also was ridiculed, and Christ also was insulted, and it was faced with distresses and persecutions and difficulties. We do it, but Paul says, I'm well content with it. Why? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He understood that uh, he had to be in this position, and the Lord had prepared him for it, for this very, very truth. And then pr- uh, finally, maybe it helped him realize what it meant to be crucified with Christ, willingly bear the marks of Christ. And in Galatians 2.20, I've said this before, beloved, it just seems so far away from the typical modern church Paul could say this convincingly. Can we, you know, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, that's the reality of your life, beloved. You know, you got, you got debited by Adam's sin. You weren't back there in the garden, but you show by your sin that you would have done the same thing, right? We understand that. So we get debited with death, headship. But you also get credited with what? Christ's crucifixion when you come to him by faith, don't you? And so... Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the reality, but that isn't what is portrayed too much in the modern church, right? We're not really that closely connected with Christ. But Paul says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, he understood what it means to be crucified with Christ because he saw the glory that's going to come. And 
whatever the reason, we just know Paul kept it to himself for 14 years. He didn't say anything about it. It wasn't beneficial to anyone else, but it was certainly beneficial to him. If we look at the passages we looked at, now in the light of his experience, we can just see so much more reality to it, can't we? If we, we understand this is really the, the, the reality for Paul. And what a blessing it is for us to be able to hear, as, as it were, Paul say, apart from the modern books about the, all of this, uh, seem to say the same thing. We know Paul's experience is true. And, and the, the hymn came to me, and I don't typically do this at the end, but the hymn came to me as I was studying this week, and I was, I'll just share it with you. It's how firm a foundation, it's an old hymn of the church. As we think about what Paul went through and all that he saw and then what he says, that is a firm foundation, isn't it? And the hymn writer wrote it this way, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am thy God, I'll give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and the gold to refine. And the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I never, no, never, no, never forsake. Paul didn't share his visions. He didn't share his revelations of this thing, but it made his foundation firm, did it not? And it does for us too. I think that we... Although it's not the main emphasis of the passage, I think that we have much more firm a foundation as we think about Paul and all he experienced and how he kept it to himself, but then so many times said, expressed what he'd learned from being there, and I think that's the key. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Just allow the Holy Spirit to work on, on our own life. Lord, we thank you today for our time in the Word, as we always do. Thank you for our time together for the Fellowship of the Saints, which is very sweet. It just has been going on since the first century. Coming together is encouraging. That's why it's important not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but come together all the more as we see the day approaching. We need this. We need the encouragement. We need the blessing. We need the correction. We need the reproof. We need the empathy. And so, Father, I pray that we'll be about that. And, Lord, as we see Paul speak to the church and we see his humility and we see what he saw and then see what he wrote, just so encouraging to us to know our foundation is very firm. And so on that foundation that's so firm, we go into our communities this week and we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And we give out the gospel to every creature. Do that because we know we're going to see you we know that there's glory prepared for us and the difficult times we're going to have don't compare with what you've planned so father help us to be a church like that thank you for uh, all that will happen this week as you've uh, given us opportunities to minister and to be a light help us to do that just to be 
I strengthen those who are in difficult times right now, Father. Just have empathy for that. And I pray that uh, we'll be on fire about things that are wrong and that we'll make sure we correct them as we see these are things that believers do. Thank you again for our meeting together and for the time that we've had. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.